Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're bringing you the recording of our recent event, The Battle for Your Brain, recorded on the 2nd of May, 2023. Imagine a world where people who suffer from epilepsy receive alerts moments before a seizure, where the average person can peer into their own mind to eliminate painful memories and we can easily cure addictions. This is also a world where your brain can be interrogated to learn your political beliefs, your thoughts can be used as evidence of a crime and your own feelings can be held against you. One of the world's foremost experts on the ethics of neuroscience, Professor Nida Farahani, claims that neuroscience has already made all of these things possible today. According to her, the growth of commercial neurotechnology could be of immense benefit to humanity. But without safeguards, it could seriously threaten our fundamental human rights to privacy, freedom of thought and self-determination. Farahani offers a path forward to navigate the complex legal and ethical dilemmas that will fundamentally impact our freedom to understand and define ourselves. To hear the full-length episode of the event and to support our mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations, just visit intelligencesquared.com membership. Over to our host, Research Director for the Centre of the Analysis of Social Media at the Think Tank Demos, Carl Miller. Anita, very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. The first question is going to be hopelessly crude or simple to begin. Tell us what brainwaves are, what this is all actually, you know, in its raw essence about. Sure. We'll say brain data more generally because there are brain, brain waves, which is uh, something that I talk a lot about in the book, but there's also other forms of brain data that can be collected. So as you think, as you do a math calculation, as you listen to music, as you do anything, experience anything, there are representations of that in the brain. And that can come in the form of brain waves. That is, as you think or experience something, neurons are firing in your brain, which give off tiny electrical discharge. Like when you have a big thought, any kind of thought, any kind of say hundreds of thousands of neurons are firing at the same time giving off concurrent electrical discharges that can be picked up and detected through sensors that are applied to the scalp or through a device that picks up oxygenation levels in the brain and changes in oxygenation level in different regions of the brain. And so brain waves are the different frequencies and amplitudes of the different firings of neurons in your brain. And those happen in characteristic patterns that as AI gets better and better, can actually be deciphered and decoded. So as you're thinking, what is Nita going to say next? There are neurons firing in your brain, which have different amplitudes and frequencies and different brain waves. And those can be detected with something called electroencephalography or EEG, which are just sensors that pick up that activity. You mentioned it just before we were joined by everyone, a new nature study, which is kind of exposing how machine learning based forms of interpretation are moving forward. So I know it's moving yeah. forward very quickly, but just give us a sense of just how rapid now the kind of capabilities that we have to read brain data are advancing. So with EEG or electroencephalography, you're picking up basic brain waves, which can tell basic brain states. Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you paying attention? Is your mind wandering? Are you bored or engaged? Do you have a positive or a negative response to some kind of stimulus? What we were talking about just a few moments ago is much more advanced technology that can peer more deeply into your brain. So the use of something like functional magnetic resonance imaging. So people are familiar with these giant MRI machines that can image inside of the body, fMRI can image 
what's happening inside of the brain, in particular, what's functionally happening inside of the brain. So as you are thinking thoughts, different regions of the brain are active. And so blood flows into a region and flows out of the region. As it flows into the region, it's carrying oxygen. That oxygen is consumed by the brain activity in that region, which means the deoxygenated blood flows out of it. And that can be picked up, those differences, the blood oxygenation levels, can be picked up by functional magnetic resonance imaging. Now, most people thought that it was too slow of a measure, the blood flow into and out of a region, as opposed to EEG, which is the rapid firing, to be able to decode thoughts, literally the continuous language that you experience in the brain. And researchers out of Texas just published a paper in Nature yesterday on May the 1st, to show that by using the advances in AI, in particular generative AI, so they use GPT-1 to predict what the next word is based on brain activity data, that they could decode continuous language and semantic content, not literally word for word, although oftentimes literally word for word, but the entire meaning of a sentence, the meaning of a sentence as well being decoded based on brain activity. They then wanted to see if the fMRIs are not something that we're going to have in our everyday lives. They're big, cumbersome machines. They're incredibly expensive to have people into them. So they wondered whether or not with non-invasive, meaning something that's not implanted in the brain, would it be possible to use the same model, the classifier that they had trained on people's brain activity to be able to decode um, using FNIRs, functional near-infrared spectroscopy. And this is a light shined through the skull, which based on the diffusion of the light, an infrared light through the skull, picks up different kind of tissue dynamics. Again, it's picking up this oxygenation levels in the brain. And they found that their classifier worked on FNIRs as well, which could be far more portable. So that's the kind of remarkable study. And part of why it's so remarkable is that up until now, basic words or phrases or images had been decoded from the brain, but not continuous language, not imagined thoughts themselves, meaning actual mind reading is, is possible. I'll just add wow. one caveat to that, which I know we'll get into the discussion of issues of mental privacy. The study itself looked at whether or not um, people could employ countermeasures to it. And it also looked to see whether a system trained on one person's brain could be used on another unwilling participant. Like, are all of our brain activities the same? And they found that no, it goes down to basically chance to decode brain activity trained on one person on another person and that you could consciously employ countermeasures. Those are good first steps at trying to figure out the extent to which this could really compromise mental privacy for people who are coerced into using the technology. Doesn't really answer what happens when people willingly use it, which is what I foresee as the coming future. So just to boil down then where we are and where we're getting to when it comes to, I guess, brain transparency or interpretation of brain data. Right now, if people are using these devices, they're they're broadly reading their mind state. So they whether they're relaxed or concentrated or or happy or things like that. And are we moving then towards a world where maybe specific actually formed thoughts, someone imagining something or someone thinking a word or a sentence, these are the gonna these are gonna be the things that become decipherable next as these classifiers become more powerful? I think that's right. The question still remains an open question of how much can a portable device pick up as opposed to the large cumbersome devices. 
but the proof of concept in a large cumbersome device for actual thought decoding is now here, right? I mean, published in Nature. There was another study that was published about a month ago that did image decoding from the brain using stable diffusion, which is again, a form of generative AI to try to figure out if new advances in AI would enable much more sophisticated decoding. So based on today's technology for portable devices, it's brain states for less portable, but still non-invasive devices like fMRI, already it's possible to decode images that a person is imagining, thoughts in terms of continuous language and inner monologue, imagined thought that a person is having. And so, you know, is the bridge between those big cumbersome devices and these smaller portable devices a, a long bridge or a short bridge? It seems like with how quickly generative AI is moving and the advances in that space. And if it's possible to have devices like the one that I was showing, this FNIRS device, um, it may be a lot closer than people realize. I mean, I have to say, we're living in a moment where I think we're all realizing every day moments where the realities of the present collide with ideas of science fiction and, and things we right. thought impossible. But but actual real-time mind reading, for me at least, is one of the most powerful moments of all of just thinking it is just so insane that we're close to be able to being able to do these kinds of things. I mean, I agree, right? So having written this book and lived with neurotechnology for quite a while and thought about these issues for quite a while, it's less alarming to me already, right? It's more normalized for me than I think for many. But in this moment, when people are really struggling with, I think, the existential crises that uh, so many are facing with respect to like, what does generative AI mean for humanity? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be living in an age in which so much of our lives are interdependent with these technologies? To then say like, and also they can decode what's literally happening in your mind, I think is incredibly startling for people. And, you know, that's why I wrote this book as both a wake up call for people to realize what's happening with neurotechnology today, the promise of it, but also the peril of it. And so I think most people feel like, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to catch up with regulation or laws or norms with respect to generative AI? We're still at a moment before with neurotechnology happening at scale across society, but I think we're literally at a moment before it going to scale across society, because we've been talking about the devices generally, what's coming now is the sensors being part of everyday devices. So I have on AirPods right now, and I showed you a, a headband that most of us are not likely to go through our lives wearing on a day-to-day -day basis, but the devices are now coming in the form of sensors for EEG, where the sensors are embedded in earbuds and headphones and even watches that pick up brain activity as it travels down your arm to your wrist and pick up your intention to move or to type or to swipe. And so in the same way that people are wearing watches that pick up heart rate or rings that pick up their temperature or breaths or sleep activity, so too will brain activity be picked up through these multifunctional devices. When that happens, which is all being launched within the next few months, that really will take this to scale in society. So we have a moment where it's kind of the moment before, we're at the moment after for generative AI going to scale across society. We're at the moment mm -hmm. before of neurotechnology going to scale across society. Mm -hmm. 
the events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. In that moment, just before we as consumers collide with this, what's kind of happening in the kind of, I guess, the commercial front then? Are, are we seeing like the very large B2C companies currently like gobbling up the labs? Is that is that currently, yes. you know, is and it's that not currently- just the labs. I mean, there's there's a lot of commercial small neurotech companies who've been developing these sensors for quite a while or developing the technology and the products for a while. One of the first major acquisitions in this space happened in 2019. So in 2018, I saw a presentation by a company then called Control Labs, where what they were demonstrating was an early prototype of a watch or bracelet where what it could do was pick up brain activity, as I was describing, going down your arm to your wrist and pick up your intention to type on a keyboard to enable you then to type on a virtual keyboard or not even type, but to think about typing and to decode from your intention to type or to communicate from your wrist. And that was the first I'd really seen the embedding of a sensor in a form that could be part of our everyday devices. And it was the first time I'd seen an illustration of the technology in a way that was more about interfacing with other technologies rather than a standalone application. So neural interface could be about you trying to see your own brain activity. Are you stressed? Are you relaxed? Are you tired? Or it could be picking up your intention to swipe and type to replace your keyboard in your mouse. And they were illustrating it for that purpose as the way you interface with other technologies. Meta acquired that company in 2019 for somewhere between 500 million to a billion US dollars. That was the first of these major tech announcements of the investment by big tech into neurotechnology as part of neural interface. Since then, Google, Microsoft, Apple, all of them have either acquired neurotech companies or significantly scaled their own efforts in the space. 
to develop sensors of their own. And so what you see is both a gobbling up of the smaller neurotech companies like Snap recently acquired a company out of Paris called NextMinds to integrate neural sensors into their augmented reality devices that they're developing. And so that's what you're seeing. You're seeing either the acquisition of talent, the acquisition of the smaller neurotech companies who've developed the specific neural sensors, or the in-house capability that's rapidly developing within each of the institutions themselves. So Nita, let, let's now get to the threat, the kind of the hazard that is upon us. Um, I very much read your book as a as a wake up call course, yeah. you know, where you've got the kind of autocrats and the surveillance capitalists and the hackers and the, the kind of, you know, centers of state power and surveillance, all kind of in this new kind of gold rush with our brain data right in the middle. If if, if things don't change, what's the kind of fear that you have for for what will happen as these consumer devices get rolled out and everyone's brain data becomes starts getting recorded. Let me say, before I answer that directly, Carl, I'm first going to take on the like, why in the world would anybody choose to use one of the devices? Because it helps better inform uh, the threat of it as well, which is um, people are very used to tracking now their heart rate, their breasts, their sleep, their body temperature. And yet they have almost no information about what's happening in their own brains. And the possibilities of being able to track everything from your stress levels to potential cognitive decline over time for somebody who's an epileptic to be able to get information about an epileptic seizure minutes to an hour before it occurs to detect the earliest stages of glioblastoma or Parkinson's or any of the neurodegenerative diseases or to have new tools to be able to fight depression or mental health disorders or drug use disorders at scale. I think will be transformational for people. Even just be able to know, like, do I really focus better at home in this hotel room or in my office setting? And to have real metrics of information about yourself, I think is the reason why people will use it. And then as the companies invest in it being the way that you interface much more seamlessly and with less friction with other technology. So you think about sending a text message instead of typing it with your thumbs, which is much faster and more efficient. And by the way, maybe you can do it while you're driving a car and it's safer as well, right? These are the ways in which I think people start to adopt it. All of the major tech companies, all of the investment in the space recognizes the huge market potential which is brain sensors don't exist in our everyday technology. We're not quantifying brain health in the same way that we treat the rest of our physical health. And so the possibility just as a market segment to sell the devices themselves is bringing a huge number of corporations to the table in this kind of rush to see who can sell the devices, who can corner this market. I mean, you, then, almost, you almost sold me. Right, <laughs> I mean, right, almost. There's a brilliant right? section and like, oh, in Nita's book about in. Um, cognitive enhancers. Right. Uh, and and how it can make you, you know, neurofeedback might be able to help you learn to think more clearly, concentrate better. And I was reading that and I was thinking, this sounds absolutely brilliant. I think the, the upside potential will lead people to rush to it. I also think that they will, when it's in your earbuds or your headphones, the risks will become invisible to them. And so what are those risks? One is the surveillance capitalism economy is about commodifying data and the gold mine of data that is brain data is what, like all of the companies recognize it. And so the commodification of brain data has already begun by these smaller neurotech companies. Now imagine like you're meta and you can say to an advertiser, I can give you not just what they're clicking likes on or how much time they're spending on their device or how they scroll through something, but literally how their brain reacts to your advertisement. Right. I mean, that's, 
gold for Meta. And so to be able to commodify brain data as people are on devices or interacting with their environment or interacting with software, of course, is part of it, right? But that means that how you think and feel, your biases, your emotions, all of that, which is being in some ways inferred from your everyday activities with a much greater degree of precision can start to be commodified by companies. And it's one thing to recognize that the precision of micro-targeting and manipulation of behavior that can occur at scale is frightening. Then you look at the way governments can misuse this as well, whether that is like uh, intelligence agencies who already spy on phones or emails can start to spy on brain activity or law enforcement worldwide who are already interrogating brains of criminal suspects using neurotechnology and can start to do so with much greater precision and at scale um, to the chilling effect it has on freedom of speech, right? There've been lots of studies that have been done that show that government surveillance chills people's willingness to speak up, to express dissident views. When people are required to wear brain devices in the workplace, which again is already happening in a number of workplaces worldwide, is already happening in regimes like China where state workers are required to wear brain surveillance devices to pick up their brain activity to see if they are tired or awake or paying attention or bored or engaged, but are also being used to interrogate their brains, whether it's to discover information about people or to chill their variability to think dissident thoughts or big thoughts or any thoughts whatsoever, I think the risks are profound. This is another one of those circumstances where technology brings oppressions and liberations kind of wrapped up together in this kind of fiendishly complicated and knotty way, which means it's very, very hard for us to kind of disentangle one from the other in a way to either stop or change direction. I think yes and no. So on the one hand, I think the bad comes with the good, right? I mean, introducing an era of greater brain transparency means that your brain is now available to you to be able to know a lot more about, your doctor to know more about, but also corporations and governments to know much more about, also other people in society. The no part of it is it doesn't have to be that employers and corporations and governments have access to the data, right? That's just been our default mode of operation with respect to all of the data that has been aggregated and commodified and collected about individuals over time. But what if we did it differently? What if we decided this is a new category of technology, this is a new frontier, the final frontier for humanity, for privacy and for mental privacy and for self-determination over our brains and mental experiences. And as that final frontier, we should approach it differently. Before it goes to scale across society, we should put into place different rules and regulations and treat it differently. We should require that brain data be overwritten on device, that individuals have the option for multifunctional devices to turn off a switch that says brainwave data should not be collected now while I'm on this conference call or this webinar or this podcast or talking to my friend or loved one or having an intimate conversation, right? There are basic choices we could make now that could fundamentally change the trajectory of this so that it really is mostly upside, right? There's always misuse. There's always downsides of technology. There's always bad actors, but we could make choices that would substantially limit the effects of it. Let's talk about those choices. Well, let's talk about the frameworks, Nita, because um, I can already see there's a question uh, in the chat about um, George Orwell. But before we get there, let's introduce <laughs> yeah. another uh, kind of important thinker, John Stuart Mill, because I know, I know that Mill and and kind of consequentialist, like liberal philosophy is very important to your thinking. So why did you alight on Mill as, as being one of the kind of main philosophical 
signposts for you to kind of navigate this terrain? My thoughts on this were really, what we need is not neurotech rights and AI rights and metaverse rights. What we need is an update to our basic conception of what liberty means in the digital age. And John Stuart Mill's book on liberty really looks closely and and is seminal in this idea of like, what is liberty and what is fundamental to it? And the way in which he really navigated that question, looking at the autonomy of individual over self vis-a-vis society and self vis-a-vis government and the basic conceptions around freedom of thought, to me, spoke a lot to how I've been thinking about the relationship of individuals to self with the ability to access the information about themselves, their own brain data, vis-a-vis society. And here I'm thinking of corporations and others having access to your brain data and vis-a-vis governments and the potential interferences with it. So that seems like a good starting place to think about both what is a broad conception of an update of liberty in the digital age and what's the missing piece, right? If you read on liberty, Mill imagined a world in which our our brains could not be accessed, that we had the solace of the mind, that freedom of thoughts, if you could hear a diversity of ideas, that you would have the private space to be able to ruminate and to think about and to be able to develop your own perspective, He didn't imagine this world in which that might not be possible. And most theories of human flourishing have always assumed that the autonomy of self over brain and mental experiences was robust and would remain. In a world in which that isn't true and which is no longer possible, it seems like Mill as a starting place for liberty to think about on cognitive liberty was the right beginning point for the theory. In essence, Nita, what would the theory say? So, a, a kind of an updated mill. What, yeah. what would that? What would that give us now? Would it? Would it be framework? So it turns out we need to go farther than mill to really have an updated theory. But okay. go ahead, please. Yeah, your framework then, borrowing from it and, and 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 lots of other people too, and your own ideas. How would that meaningfully guide both the development of the technology and, I suppose, the rights and opportunities that consumers and individuals have around brain data and how it's used? The way that I've been kind of framing it is to say cognitive liberty is both a right to self-determination, that is a right to access information about our own brains, to change them if we choose to do so, but also a right from, a right from interference with our mental privacy and our freedom of thought. And understanding the kind of landscape this way, the idea of the right to self-determination really derives more from something like John Locke, which is the idea of self-ownership and self-governance, that the starting place for democratic systems, the starting place for human flourishing begins with this idea of self-ownership and self-determination. But that idea, this kind of positive aspect of liberty in the digital age is there are huge benefits to technologies. Humanity is moving in the direction of a much greater interrelationship with technology. And the right to be able to use those technologies to change our mental experiences, to enhance, as you said, you were drawn to the ability to be able to enhance your own brain, right? That's part of what we do as humans. And so it's not just a right to non-interference. It's a right to the positive aspects and to be able to use and access and change our brains and experiences through the use of technologies and interactions with them. But importantly, A right from interference requires that we have a much more robust understanding of concepts of privacy as a relative right, meaning there are some times in which societal interventions into brains and mental experiences will make sense, but mental privacy 
would mean our automatic reactions, our emotions, our very thoughts would be protected against unwarranted intrusions. And then a much narrower aspect of the theory is freedom of thought. So freedom of thought right now, as it's understood in international human rights law, primarily focuses on religion and belief. There's been very important work that's been done in this space, both by other scholars and also by the previous mandate holder to the UN Declaration of Human Rights for Freedom of Thought, which was Dr. Ahmed Shahid. He presented a, a report in October of 2021 to the UN General Assembly, arguing that our conception of freedom of thought really needs to be expanded to address interception, manipulation, and punishment for our thoughts. And I think that makes a lot of sense. The question then is just, how do we define thought? And here, I think thought is the really narrow sliver of robust thoughts and images in our minds, because we try to read others' minds all the time. We try to manipulate other people all the time. We try to persuade other people all the time. We don't want to interfere with ordinary human interactions, but we do want to safeguard us against interference with our very thoughts and images in our minds. Say we focus just, for instance, on on the interpretation of brain data for commercial purposes for advertising. Yeah. Do, do you kind of fundamentally see that framework being expressed through people's kind of individual capacities to choose or opt out? Well, I know you worry about it too. You know, for yeah. all of us working on kind of privacy as Web2 came in, we all kind yeah. of watch with horror as actually most consumers quite willingly surrendered enormous amounts of data for use of the apps and technologies which we all now use, including me. So, I, you know, I guess one of the worries would be that if offered a similar kind of deal, a vast majority of people would probably take it, um, even if that meant gross invasions or possible harms further down the line. So I believe this framework would have implications for the basic model when it comes to brain data. And that is, you described it as like a, an opt out model. Uh, does it change or does it, you know, do people opt out? Do they opt in? I think that's not the way that we should be thinking about this category of data. I think we need a new approach. I think most people will at some point be presented with a choice as to whether or not to use a neural interface device. And it might be so that it becomes so ubiquitous, you don't have much of a choice, right? In order to interact with your computer or with your other technology or to use virtual reality or augmented reality, neural interface is your choice. So you either accept the technology or you don't. And I believe it should not be part of that choice that to use the technology means that you have opted into your brain data being commodified, which is basically the current choice that you have. If you use social media platforms, if you use basic search engines, you have to agree to the terms of service, which is your data is being commodified to have access to the service. And that's not a fair trade when it comes to brain data. So I think instead it is that that's not part of the business model that neurotech companies or big tech companies get to present us with. Instead, you have mental privacy over your brain data. And that means that your brain data is your data. It is data that cannot be commodified unless you affirmatively choose to share your data, not as part of the terms of service of like the exchanges, your brain data is the product that companies are buying by selling you a device or giving you free access to their technology. But instead it is 
you could affirmatively choose to share your data with scientists and researchers who are doing research, you know, for the common good on solving Parkinson's or solving neurological diseases and, you know, mental health suffering, but that it's just not part of the model that mental privacy gives you the right over your brain data. Now that's a radical change for companies, right? Who have really, as part of the surveillance economy, have built their business models on the commodification of data. It doesn't have to be the way in which this model is built. The pricing of neurotech devices could be based on an assumption that commodification of the data is not the end game for the product. I, I presume, by the way, that challenge to that fundamental model has to come from a state or some kind of multilateral authority. I mean, there, there doesn't seem to be any other kind of actor that could. How hopeful, Nita, are you that that kind of challenge will sooner or later in some form be mounted? Because it seems to me that we're, we're at quite an interesting moment when your book comes out, where we're having increasing kind of tempo of regulatory attention and activity in the UK, across the EU, perhaps not quite so much in the United States, though, um, <laughs> right. which I, I suppose would be a pretty important market for us to yes. see rules being rolled out for. Yeah. So first of all, the nice thing about GDPR and other approaches worldwide is they can set the floor of compliance, right? So if you have to build your device so that the data is overwritten on device, for example, um, it's hard to develop the model where it's overwritten on device for one market, but not overwritten for device on the other market, right? It's just expensive to segment your market that way. And so I'm hopeful that there is movement in other countries toward creating a more aggressive floor. I am also slightly more optimistic than you are about corporate moves in this direction and just slightly more optimistic but a number of the neurotech companies who are launching are launching with the promise that your brain data is your data, that they will not collect, use, sell that data. I don't know how those promises hold true when they're acquired by big tech companies who've built their model otherwise. And if those promises extend to the next owner of the company as well. But I'm a little bit more hopeful that the collective consciousness of many of the neurotech companies seems to be like, this is different. The data here is uniquely in many ways sensitive. And given that, that the approach needs to be different, but I believe we need to fundamentally change the model quickly. And I'm optimistic that the AI moment has made it so that there is more political will and understanding of the need to move quickly. Um, I'm also pessimistic because we seem to fail to get out ahead of things almost every time. And this is rapidly evolving, right? I mean, a month ago, if you had asked me, like, can these devices literally decode continuous language from the brain, I would have said, no, there hasn't been any demonstration that that's the case. And then, you know, on May 1st, a paper is published on nature saying otherwise, right? And, and mm -hmm. so we don't have time to dawdle. We don't have time to, you know, sit back on our laurels and be like, oh, we've got years. We, we don't, we have to act now. And I do worry about the ability to act quickly in the face of rapid change. Mm. As, as do I, for sure. Um, last question for me before we go, we'll turn to the audience. Um, Nita, why hasn't this yet at least sparked the kind of global concern that we've seen, for instance, with chat GPT bots? Because it seems to me that the ability for a machine to read your mind... <laughs> 
has every bit as profound an implication to our lives and every bit as great a capacity for us to imagine dystopian and revolting futures as any other application of AI that we've ever seen. It was really, you know, even for someone like me that, that works on all these issues, it was really only when I read your book that I think I was fully awakened to all of this. Like, do you, do you have a theory for why maybe this has gone under the radar in the way that it has up to this point? Many people who haven't read my book yet, Carl, think it's a future threat. And then they read my book and they say, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this is all already here, that the technology has matured as much as it has, and that this is a present active threat, that it isn't some futuristic scenario. So part of it is that, you know, generative AI models have been in development for quite a long time, but it wasn't until OpenAI decided to go direct to consumer rather than B2B, business to business, that suddenly everybody understood the capabilities of generative AI. And right now, neurotech has primarily been niche products with limited applications to a limited audience. It has not been at scale where suddenly a technology like generative AI is introduced en masse to the entire world at once. I believe that moment is about to happen. I hope we don't wait for that moment to then make the choices, because as you see with generative AI, which, by the way, is what is pushing so much of neurotech forward, right? It's one of the major advances that is making this happen as fast as other areas. People quickly were like, oh, gosh, we need to regulate it. Oh, wait, it's too late. They've already been unleashed. There's not a lot we could do. Let's all pause. Wait, maybe a pause doesn't help anything. Now what? And that's the conversation we're going to be having in two years' time with neurotechnology if we don't act now. And so I think people are waking up. I hope my book is helping to do that. It woke you up. It's waking up a lot of other people. And you know, it's bringing attention to the matter. We just need a couple more papers like the one that was published on May 1st in Nature saying, hey, guess what? Generative AI enables real-time decoding of non-invasive continuous language and thoughts from the brain, I think for people to start to truly wake up to the potential of the technology in this area. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. To hear the rest of the conversation, visit intelligencesquared.com slash membership. This event was produced by senior producer Connor Boyle with editing from executive producer Rowan Slaney. We'd love to hear your feedback on what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcast at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. <laughs>